0: Hello and welcome to Cumber Baptist Church Podcast. The following is taken from our Spring Bible Conference, Tuesday 30th of April 2019. This evening we are joined by Pastor Andrew Campbell, who takes his reading from Ruth, Chapter 3, and brings a message entitled, Midnight Proposal. It's great to be back with you again uh, on Tuesday evening. Thank you for your support uh, for a day in attending tonight. And we're again turning to the book of Ruth, uh, Ruth chapter 3 tonight. This is number four out of five studies in this wonderful book of Ruth, nestling between the book of Judges and First Samuel. The time of the Judges is between 1250 and 1050 BC. So this story in front of us tonight is about 3,000 years old. And we'll read together from Ruth chapter 3. This is God's Word. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. "'Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. "'But do not make yourself known to the man until he is finished eating and drinking. "'When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. "'Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do.' "'And she replied, "'All that you say I will do.' "'So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her,' And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone out after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a Redeemer, yet there is a Redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if He will redeem you good, let Him do it. But if He is not willing to redeem you then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you lie down until morning so she lay at his feet until the morning but arose before no one could recognize another and he said let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor and he said bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out so she held it and measured out six measures of barley and put it on her then she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law she said how did you fare my daughter then she told her all that the man had done for her saying these six measures of barley he gave to me for he said to me you must not go back empty handed to your mother-in-law she replied wait my daughter until you learn how the matter turns out for the man will not rest but will settle the matter today ending our reading at verse 18 we thank god for his precious word wondered any of the men here remember where you proposed to your wife I can't actually remember where I proposed but I do remember I do remember going to buy the engagement ring and we had to uh, announce our engagement ring on a Friday because I had planned to go to the Irish Cup final on the Saturday I was getting my priorities right how things have changed I wouldn't go to the back door now to watch the Irish Cup final People propose in all sorts of glamorous locations London Paris Rome, you see their Instagram photographs or their Facebook posts. Tonight we see a wedding proposal at a threshing floor at the end of a heap of grain, not the most glamorous of settings. And we see Ruth proposing to Boaz. It must have been a leap year as she takes the initiative and pops the question. In the book of Ruth, we said at the introduction on Sunday, in each chapter, there's a significant event at a significant place. Chapter one, it's at that crossroads between Moab and Bethlehem, where Ruth makes this decision to follow Naomi's God. Chapter two was at the barley field last night. And now in chapter three, the spotlight shifts to the threshing floor, and Boaz comes to the fore. As we've watched the story unfold, we've seen how the Lord works in the seen and in the unseen. We see his absolute sovereignty and providence over every area of our lives. We see his providential hand bringing this woman, Ruth, from a pagan land to play a crucial role in his great plan of redemption. And last time we remarked that whenever Naomi heard that Ruth had been working in a field belonging to Boaz. Naomi seems to be hearing wedding bells already, and she was phoning around to check the price for the reception. And Ruth is just about to update her Facebook status to in a relationship. Now, to grasp the overall thrust of the book of Ruth, we need to understand the, the context of marriage and the importance of maintaining the family name. We're going to get technical for just a few minutes, so just please bear with me as we look at two significant words that are mentioned in the book of Ruth. The family in that culture was central to the community. And there was an obligation to safeguard the members of the family, particularly in relation to two elements. The continuation of the family name and the enjoyment of the promised land. Now, the word kinsman we encounter in the book of Ruth is the Hebrew word goel, G-O-E-L. And originally, the goel was the next of kin of an Israelite family. He had the responsibility to look after the the poor relation in the family. If someone had fallen in hard times, the goel would step in. He would be expected to volunteer to help. If a family were in debt and were forced to sell their land... The Goel would redeem it. He would buy it back. If a family was under threat, he would come and protect them. He might buy a family member out of slavery. He might avenge the death of a family member who had been murdered. This is of vital importance in the land because of the necessity of covenantal faithfulness, protecting those who were vulnerable and needy. And this took precedence over personal wealth and personal ambition. And this type of care reflected the love and care God has for his covenant people. This is a picture of our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus, the one who describes himself in the Old Testament and the New Testament as the Redeemer of his people. Exodus 6, verse 6, God says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched hand. A similar principle in maintaining the structure of the family is that of the, the levirate law. That word comes from the Latin word "levir," which means brother-in-law. Could you turn back in your Bible to the book of Deuteronomy, and we'll see how the Lord declares in Deuteronomy how widows should be treated. Deuteronomy 25, and we'll read three verses there, verses 5 to 7. These are the laws concerning labyrinth marriage. Deuteronomy 25 verse 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom he she bear shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may be not blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. This practice where the, the brother-in-law, of the brother of the deceased would marry the widow is called a leveret marriage. See, in Israel, there was a great social stigma attached to women who didn't have children, who didn't have sons to carry on the family name. And also, in that society, a widow with no children would very soon become a beggar. So, the Lord has set these principles in place to maintain the family and to ensure that the, the, the land would stay in the family name. As we know at the start of the story, Naomi is married, has married, his two sons. They're all dead. There's no one now to carry on the family name of Naomi. And this would have been regarded as a, a great humiliation and a great dishonor for that family. But as we get into the text tonight, into chapter 3, four things we see tonight. First of all, we see the impatience of Naomi. First six verses. Now, Naomi is not looking for a goel, a redeemer for herself. She's looking for a redeemer for her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the woman from the pagan land of Moab, the one who was actually outside, legally outside the redeemed community of God's people. Just look at verse one of chapter three. Naomi says, my daughter, shall I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? One translation of this phrase is, I must see you settled in life. Naomi is obviously thinking here of maintaining the family line, but she's also genuinely concerned for the well-being of her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who's bought a one-way ticket out of Moab. She's given up everything to look after Naomi. She's put her trust in Naomi's God. We're told that, Remember at the end of chapter 2, we were told that Ruth obeyed Naomi. She stayed close to the young woman of Boaz. She continued to work hard right to the end of the harvest time. This period between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 is probably about seven weeks. We're not told if there's any more contact between Boaz and Ruth. But as chapter 3 unfolds, it's more than unlikely that there has been some more contact between these two. And what Ruth did was she remained faithful in the small things. Looking after her mother in law, working hard in the fields. This is what's expected of us. We're not called to be famous, we're simply called to be faithful in the small things. And like any good mother in law, Naomi knows everything that's going on in town. She knows where Boaz is working. She knows what time he's working. She knows exactly what he's doing. Naomi has her ear to the ground. And once again, she reminds Ruth that Boaz is one of their relatives, and she here is showing her impatience. She's trying to Pull the strings in this relationship. And we see that the impatience of Naomi is very unwise in this particular setting. As we said last time, the threshing floor was outside the town. This is the time of the judges where everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Harvest time was a time of immorality and loose living. So women would have been vulnerable. And Naomi was effectively putting Ruth in great danger by sending her out late at night. She could have been attacked. She could have been abducted on the way. Boaz may not have responded the way he did. He may have viewed Ruth's conduct as improper, presumptuous, but Naomi's running out of patience. And so she decides to take matters into her own hands. After all, it's been seven weeks. This pair have been going out together for seven weeks and there's no word of an engagement ring. Naomi says, I have to get things moving here. This is not always the best policy. This behavior seems to be a bit of a hangover from the time in Moab. All of us here tonight need to wait on God's time. If we're faced with a big decision or a big change in direction, we need to wait on God's time. Remember the caution of Psalm 37, 7. Rest on the Lord and wait patiently for Him. I remember the time back in 2008-2009 I was attending Drumore Baptist Church and I've been given some opportunity to speak in that church. People said to me from time to time you should consider uh, going to Bible college, going into full-time ministry and I didn't. I thought I tried it five years ago and the door closed and I thought it was in the back burner But people kept saying to me, you should think about college. And the more I thought about it and the more opportunities I got, I thought maybe this is for me. So 2010, I went to the Irish Baptist College and I had an interview with Nigel Young and it went okay. And then I went for another interview and I was accepted for the Irish Baptist College. I went to my boss and work in 2010 and I said, I'd like to take voluntary redundancy. I was 49 at the stage. And I said, I'd like to go in six weeks' time. He says, no, that's too soon. Stay another year. So that was, that was August 2010. And a wise man who I'm still in contact with said to me, Andrew, if you're thinking about taking this step into full-time service, you need to wait until God calls you. Because whenever tough times come, you will need something to go back on and tell God, this is where you called me from. So all 2010 I prayed, there's no breakthrough, there's no guidance. The start of 2011, no breakthrough, no guidance, no word. I had to tell my boss by the 11th of May, 2011. And I go to church on the 10th of May, 2011, and I have nothing. I have no word, no confirmation. But on that day in Drumore Baptist Church, there was a visiting speaker. And everything in that message was a confirmation for me and my wife to take that step of faith. The children's talk, the sermon, the introduction, the the illustrations, the application, verses that I had been thinking about and praying over. And that was the final seal, the final word from God to step out. And the next day I went and told my boss that the decision is still the same. I want to go to the Irish Baptist College. So I went, I left my work at the end of August 2011, went to the Irish Baptist College the next week for three years, and it was the three toughest years of my life. But I had that call to go back on. Every time the tough times came, I could go back to the the May 2011 when God called me. Naomi is impatient. Someone has said, don't pray. If you can't pray a door opening, Don't pry it open. This is what Naomi's doing. She's trying to pry the door open for Ruth. And Naomi gives her the instructions. She's told to get cleaned up, perfumed up, and dressed up. Put on her best coat. This is probably the only coat she had. This coat she would have worn at nighttime to keep her warm. So Ruth's all ready to go out for her glamorous date at the threshing floor. But she is to remain incognito until Boaz has eaten. And she is instructed to follow this very strange custom of uncovering the man's feet and lying down there. Some people view this as being in the place of submission, the place of petition, or the place of appeal. This is Naomi and her impatience. Secondly, we see the obedience of Ruth. This is an Israeli custom. It's all new to Ruth. But she was willing to fully submit to her mother-in-law's plan, even though her mother-in-law was being very impatient. She went to the threshing floor on her own. She waited patiently in the darkness for her time to move center stage and carry out Naomi's plan. Look at verse 7. We're told that Boaz went to sleep on top of the grain. This is how you protect the grain from robbers. Now, the servants are probably in another area. Boaz is in this part on his own. He's a place of privacy and a place of serenity on his own. And we're told that Ruth arrived quietly on the scene. She'll lay down at Boaz's feet once he's sound asleep. Ruth doesn't want to embarrass Boaz. And as becoming her character, she goes about things in a very careful, discreet way. Ruth follows Naomi's plan to a T. There's nothing sleazy, there's nothing inappropriate about Ruth's comp here, it doesn't compromise her character, nor did Boaz. But if you look at verse nine, you see Ruth seems to go off script. Remember what Naomi, Naomi had told her, wait until Boaz will tell you what to do. But just like our mother now, she gets a bit impatient. And when Boaz wakens up, she pops the question Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. This proposal of Ruth is far from glamorous. It's the middle of the night, it's in the threshing floor. She's just wakened her potential husband out of his sleep after a hard night's work. And Ruth acknowledges her need of a redeemer. I am your maidservant. I am at your disposal. Will you redeem me? Notice she calls herself Ruth. She's no longer the anonymous girl from Moab. Ruth now has dignity, she has value, she has worth. She has lost her husband. She has been mourning for a considerable time now, but it's time to move on to something resembling the normal activities of life and the normal relationships of life. She needs a a goel. She needs a redeemer. and She reminds Boaz that he's a close relative. See, once again, Ruth takes the initiative, Ruth is thinking of others. She wasn't obliged to marry this older man. Yes, Naomi wants a husband for for Ruth, but Ruth wants a child for Naomi. Ruth wants to carry on the family line of Elimelech and her husband Malon. Ruth is a virtuous woman a woman of integrity, a woman of reliability, and we see clearly her submission and her obedience. Thirdly, tonight, we see the grace of Boaz. Ruth is very discreet in this scenario, but you have to admire the reaction of Boaz. Remember, now, he's worked hard all evening, He's exhausted, he lies down in the grain, and if, like most men, he's sound asleep, and he's snoring loudly. And all of a sudden he's wakened out of his sleep, he gets cold feet. I don't know what you're like if you're awakened out of your sleep. Perhaps the duvet slipped off your feet, or theres a noise wakens you. I know I'm very grumpy whenever I get wakened, whenever my wife wakens me and says, "What's that noise outside?" And I have to confess that I'm not particularly spiritual and gracious. <laughs> Unlike Boaz. Remember, Boaz is a, he's a red-blooded male. He's a sinner like the rest of us. He could have acted inappropriately. He could have taken advantage of the situation. But he sees his true character and his true godliness. After he's wakened and smelt the perfume, he realizes there's a woman lying at his feet. And his first words are spiritual and gracious. Blessed are you of the Lord. I'm sorry, but my first words when I'm waking out of my sleep are not as gracious and spiritual as that. Boaz remains calm and focused, He's symptomatic of people whose hearts and minds are controlled and guarded by the peace of God and the love of God. This is the response of Boaz. He's calm. He's collected. He's gracious. He's godly. And of course, he shows authentic integrity. He's very aware of the perception of this midnight encounter. And I believe this is proof that Naomi's plan was too hasty, ill-conceived. Her attentions were admirable, but the plan was rash. And the plan could have compromised both Boaz and Ruth. But now Boaz shows his integrity. He knows because of this ill-advised plan, now Ruth's reputation is vulnerable, and he wants to keep her integrity, he wants to maintain her godliness, and his response is ever so gracious. He acknowledges that Ruth could have had her choice of the younger men, the the pick of the men in Bethlehem. But because of her covenant loyalty to Naomi and her dead husband, she's approached Boaz, this older man, and she says, Ruth, you've been gracious to me. You've been gracious to your mother and all. And he uses that word we mentioned last night, that word hesed in verse 10. You made this last kindness. That's that word hesed. Remember we said last night, it's mentioned over 250 times in the Old Testament. It means kindness, goodness, covenant faithfulness. It's the closest word in the Old Testament to our word for grace. Ruth has gone above and beyond the call of duty and it's solely out of love for her mother-in-law Naomi and for the love of the family name. Philip Brooks, the man who wrote that lovely hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, once said, Judy makes us do things well, but love makes us do things beautifully. And all throughout the book of Ruth, we come to face-to-face with people who go above and beyond the call of Judy. Remember, Ruth has only recently come to trust the Lord. She's new to the faith. She's experienced profound grief, losing Her husband. The pain of having to abandon her parents and her family back in Moab. She was sensitive, she was vulnerable, but look how tenderly Boaz speaks to her. He doesn't scold her, he doesn't rebuke her, he speaks to her with immense tenderness and grace. And he refers to her as my daughter. He tells her do not fear. Many times the Lord Jesus Christ spoke those words whenever he encountered people in the Bible fear not. There's a lesson for us, I believe, and how we deal with young people or those young in the faith. maybe in their desire to grow spiritually, run ahead of themselves and make some genuine mistakes. Their heart is in the right place, but maybe, because, maybe they show a lack of wisdom and a lack of maturity. Alexander White, the famous 19th century preacher, said, there is such a thing as sanctification by vinegar an acidic correctness that leaves a sharp and unpleasant taste in the mouth. Vinegar might enhance the flavor of your chips, but it's far from pleasant a taste on its own. And sad to say some Christians exhibit a judgmental approach to those who genuinely make mistakes. They're cold-hearted. They're critical. No one wants to be counseled or rebuked by someone who has been sanctified by vinegar. Notice as Boaz speaks to Ruth... He's so like our Redeemer, our kinsman Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's tender-hearted. He's compassionate. He's full of grace. Let us follow the example not only of Boaz, but of our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus, who drew alongside us tenderly and graciously. Let us reflect on the patience and grace of our Savior whenever we interact with those who In their enthusiasm and in their eagerness, sometimes just trip up and make a bit of a mess. Lastly tonight, we see in this chapter 3, the wisdom of Boaz. Boaz is gracious, but he's also practical. And he shows an immense amount of wisdom. Boaz wants to do the right thing. He's obviously flattered by this marriage proposal. From a younger woman, a younger woman who wants him to be her goel, her redeemer, and who also wants him to fulfil this levirate marriage. He commended her as a virtuous woman, but Boaz knows the lie of the land, and he knows that there's a relative of Elimelech who's closer than him. He could have taken advantage of the situation. But as befitting his character and his knowledge of God and his word, he was completely submitted to the authority of God's word and God's ways. He didn't look for shortcuts. He didn't cut corners. He committed every decision, every change in direction to the Lord. He was determined to never run ahead of the Lord. It was his desire that he would do God's way, God's will, God's way. In God's time. And he's so unlike Elimelech, he's so unlike Naomi. He does trust in the Lord with all his heart. He doesn't lean on his own understanding. And subsequently, the Lord does direct his paths. He's a deep seated trust in the Lord. And he believes firmly that the Lord will bring his purposes to pass. He's a deep affection for Ruth. But it has to be in God's time. See, bottom line is, Boaz did the right thing. He would give the other relative the option of being the kinsman redeemer. Boaz wouldn't have paid cash for stuff on the farm to avoid VAT. He didn't run his car on red diesel. He didn't shade the truth in a business deal. He didn't gossip. And on every occasion, and in every situation, we must do the right thing. Because we know when we're doing the wrong thing. We know what grieves the Lord. We know what grieves the Holy Spirit. The confirmation, the authenticity of our faith is that we are always willing to do the right thing. Even if it's costly. Even if it's awkward. Even if it's painful. The lord jesus said in john 14 he who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me boaz will give this other man his place and if he's unwilling to redeem ruth boaz will step in he'll perform the duty and he ends the conversation in verse 13 mentioning the lord he started off the conversation acknowledging the lord He ends the conversation. As the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Some writers, some of them even of an evangelical hint, say that there's some sort of moral impropriety in this scenario that Ruth literally threw herself at Boaz, that she went to the threshing floor with one motive in mind, to seduce this man. And many writers allude to some sort of moral compromise here. This is patently not the case. Boaz is a man of great integrity. Ruth is an honorable and humble woman. She's a woman of noble character. Now, the Bible never shrinks from painting its characters warts and all. But there's no hint here in the, in the narrative that something improper took place. Both of these godly characters have sincere, genuine integrity. They've already shown in the story unusual levels of spirituality and godly character. They both follow the Lord. They know He watches every step. They're willing to live sacrificially for Him and for others. Ruth would have done absolutely nothing to compromise Boaz. They're both people of integrity. This is what Billy Graham said. Integrity is the glue that holds our way of life together. We must constantly strive to keep our integrity intact. When wealth is lost, nothing is lost. When health is lost, something is lost. When character is lost, all is lost. Ruth and Boaz both maintain their integrity. And anxious to maintain her reputation, he urges Ruth to leave early in the morning before dawn before someone sees her and puts two and two together and comes to the wrong conclusion. And once again, Ruth heads home with this bountiful supply of grain on her back. And her mother-in-law, who is behind this very risky plan, is anxious to know how things have turned out. And we're told Ruth gave her all the details of this midnight encounter. Nothing hold back. She's done nothing to be ashamed of. And I believe we should counsel our young people. That whenever they go out on a date or whenever they're out with their friends, the benchmark should always be, would I be willing to tell my mother what I'm just about to do? Even in later life. It's a good rule of thumb in every situation we face. And look at verse 17. We see this recurrent theme. He said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Remember in chapter 1, Naomi goes out full, she comes home empty. Chapter 2, Ruth goes out empty, she comes home full. Once again, God is overruled. Once again, God has provided for his people and the suspense is palpable. The chapter ends with anticipation. Will Boaz do the right thing? Will he do it straight away? The kinsman redeemer, remember we said at the start, he came to rescue family members, people in difficulty, people in need. He had to be a relative. He had to be like them. He had to be willing and able. He would take them under his wing and protect them. Boaz was willing, under no obligation to redeem Ruth, but he was willing to go above and beyond the call of duty because he loved Ruth. And we know tonight as we sit here as believers, our God has gone above and beyond the call of duty for us. He was obliged to punish us for our sin. We were... Rebel sinners shaking our fist at God in rebellion. We were lost. Yet God chose to make his son one of us. To redeem us. And to redeem us at infinite, immeasurable cost. By his son taking that center cross at Mount Calvary. And allowing his son to suffer the injustice and the wickedness of cruel men, and then for those three hours from 12 noon to 3 p.m., suffer the indescribable, incomparable wrath of God as he would pour out his precious blood to redeem us from the curse of the law. The Lord Jesus Christ became our kinsman redeemer. He became one of us to be our savior, and he has become tonight our dearest friend. And he has taken us under our wing, and he has protected us. And tonight as a believer, you may be going through the mill. Trouble has arrived at your door yet again today. Remember, you're under the shadow of his wing, the place of security, the place of safety, the place of strength. And our response tonight as Christians to the gospel is to go above and beyond the call of duty for our fellow Christians. For those who are part of God's redeemed family, we're a, we're a faith community. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're encouraged time and time again in the Bible to look out for each other. Galatians six two, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so the story continues. And if you're reading this for the first time, you would be wondering, will they? Won't they? You'll have to wait until tomorrow night as we conclude in chapter 4. We thank God for his word to our hearts this evening.